Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snickton along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Magic Mondays are finally back here on X, and we are excited to bring you coverage of stories from Marvel Voices Legacy from 2022, the most recent issue of Strange Academy, as well as a discussion of the state of the vampire nation in the Marvel Universe. But first off, I wanted to point out a Marvel magic story that I thought was really effective in the last few months. Electra Black, White, and Blood has been a pleasure to read, if for no other reason the character lends herself so well to this format. The exploration of shadow, light, dark, the contrast of red, naturally created by her suit, there's something so perfect about this blending of ideas, and with her success in Devil's Reign and Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil, this felt like the right time for her to get this treatment. Now, we'd covered the Wolverine series, and we said that the stories work to varying degrees of success, but for me here, this story had everything I was looking for from the use of a unique stylizing format. The story in question is Greg Smallwood's Yokai from Electra Black, White, and Blood 2. The story really fired for me in all the ways I needed. And one of the things that made it work so well for me is I believe Electra works best as a character of mystery who is best set in mysterious situations. I don't really like exploring Electra's deepest motivations. I really like a mystique about her. And I had been a little nervous when I realized that this issue had no dialogue, but Smallwood made it work perfectly here. The horror aspects were exquisite. I felt the yokai itself was terrifying in a way that I'm beginning to understand a little bit better, thanks to Marvel's continued explorations of stories from new and exciting writers. Like, I've so greatly enjoyed seeing so much of Eastern horror presented by Peach Momoko and her incredible team over on Demon Days, like Zach Davison and Ariana Mar. And it's been so exciting to see further evolution of horror ideas at Marvel as a big horror buff, and this just had all the magic I was looking for without being overly mystical. Nobody was casting spells, which I love, but this had a very simple sort of horror monster vibe to it, and that's the kind of thing that I look for in a short story with no dialogue, where so few characters are given little more than their face. They have no agency, they have no name, they're to create people for the hero to defend and save, and I really felt like this story hit a lot of what I needed. It was simple, it was clean, and I feel like Greg Smallwood really knocked it out of the park with Yokai. Now on to today's coverage, we're going to kick things off with Raven in discussion with ex-Twitter's Andre, better known as Talk Nerdy to me, discussing some of Marvel Voices Legacy's stories. We're going to feature the more mystic characters or characters with a mystic background in this episode, and we're going to continue to publish the balance of these stories throughout the week. This episode sees Legend by Corey Ziegler and Janoy Lindsay, Wanna Play by Nacha Bustos, and A Treasure Worthy of a King from Maria Froelich and Stephanie Petrow. We hope you guys enjoy as much as we enjoyed making this segment for you. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to check us out over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hello, 
everybody, and welcome to X is for Podcast, a podcast about mutants, marvels, magic, and more. Hopefully you will survive this episode, unlike, oh, actually no, everybody survived this episode, which actually kind of made me really happy and there's some <laughs> tribute stuff. So today we have our ever so lovely Dre. Hello, everybody. Where can they find you, Dre? Well, you can find me anywhere coffee is served, but... Um, <laughs> yes! <laughs> it's so early in the morning, but I mean, you can pretty much find me on Instagram and Twitter under Talk Nerdy to Me, and it's spelled really differently because, you know, handles are just what they are. T-A-L-K-N-R-D-Y, the number two, M-E, like I said, on uh, IG and Twitter. And then I also co-admin an X-Men Facebook group called the New Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, which mm-hmm. is a predominantly queer and and black space for X-Men. Oh, that definitely sounds like some place that I need to join, like Toot Sweet. My name is Raven, aka Dame Red Bento, and today we are going to be reviewing Voices Legacy number one, which they had a number one last year. So that's only slightly confusing. I mean, from a numbering standpoint, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to uh for 2020 and for 2021 yes. so that made it very interesting and considering they love the fact that legacy numbering is a thing you would think they would get that right for this right. issue from legacy yeah. right they oh man they missed the they missed the whole thing so let's go ahead dive straight in we've got some we've got like almost a dozen wonderful stories all done by and for the black diaspora or the african diaspora and i just uh, it makes me happy on on a lot of levels let's dive right in with this beautiful one page Black Panther legend. It was significant. It was poignant because of the mm-hmm. idea that it, we have Black Panther as mm-hmm. such a prolific countable character in his own right. And then we are still kind of dealing with the aftermath of Chadwick Boseman's passing and his portrayal mm-hmm. of Black Panther. So this was bittersweet in many ways because you know that the character is living on, but the actor isn't, which usually is kind of in reverse. You know what I mean? Like usually mm-hmm. like the comic book character passes away in the book and whoever played him like you know just keeps going but like now it's just it's a little different so you have to think about how this affects people and then what the actual little story is about even though it's a one-pager it hits home in various levels because you can see just the history of Black Panther and you can see the impact that he had in this one page absolutely I, I love the style of art they use just that kind of almost ghostly ethereal background and then just <laughs> the person who's at the forefront is quite a bit more sharp but to me there's still very much a very ethereal quality to them yeah because they start fade out as they go along towards the yes back. yes yeah. and it's like it's just these gentle resemblances on such a poignant topic they did such a wonderful wonderful job not only are the words just so beautifully poignant but the art that goes with it is just it's so good yeah it's a wonderful tribute painted beautifully rendered out beautifully what i love about it it's the juxtaposition of the coloring where yes. everything is this bright white versus mm-hmm. like the the black panther outfit color Mm-hmm. Like it was very powerful in that time. Yeah, the the soft purples and blues, mm-hmm. and purple is also a color of royalty. Yes, it was a very very difficult dye to make when it came to clothing. And so paints and dyes that that were purple were exceedingly difficult to come across. And I also love that they do have at least one female and possibly possibly two female characters represented yeah, here. Yeah, it could be. I'm honestly hoping that that kind of rings significant with people because in the comic he was decommissioned for a while and Shuri did take over as Black Panther for a while so there is precedence for a woman taking over which might happen in the next movie but I don't there's nothing set in stone it's all just you know mild rumor mill at this point yeah and I've actually had that conversation last night about it 
I was like, I know that they don't want to. I know they don't want to recast him, mm-hmm. but I think you have to. Look at, yeah. I, I know that they want to respect him and I know they want to respect his legacy, but I think if they don't, we'll get no more Black Panther unless they pass the mantle on to someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we honestly need at least one more Black Panther with T'Challa before we yes, pass absolutely. the mantle on to somebody new. But yeah, absolutely. Oh, all respect to this, this artist did a beautiful job. Yes, the white-haired zaddy one in the back with the lapel jacket. Yeah. <laughs> Oh I was like, God. I want to yeah. so badly. <laughs> right? I'm just like, I'm not going to point that out. I'm not going to point that out. Thank you. I was, I was like, okay. I, was, he was, he, oh, my God. Oh, the, mm, they got some <laughs> delicious looking people there. My little yeah, pansexual yeah. self is just going, hello, step on me, all of you. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, okay. <laughs> right? He's like, mm, zaddy. <laughs> it's like, I know it's supposed to be a touching tribute, but I also kind of want some of the tribute to touch yeah. me. <laughs> like, it's a hot ghost right here like right putting the fun back at funerals <laughs> yeah no it was it was a wonderful tribute and also just yeah they amazing artwork and absolutely gorgeous 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 people that they called ghosts that they drew yeah but it also makes you think about what he said that you know mm-hmm. he understands what his legacy is he understood what his history is and he mm-hmm. knows that the person who will be the successor of him will also understand that so it makes you just realize that there is a even in comic books there's a shelf life for these people absolutely and i think when you have that conversation of mortality and the comic book world we know that death Mm. doesn't stick but sometimes (laughs) right and this is like a lightning in a bottle situation because sometimes it doesn't always work out this way that they will attach a actor to a comic book character and it's that person's role for the rest of their life Mm -hmm. and this is one of those instances where you you you're struggling and you're challenged with like okay well what are they really going to do? Like, could they kill off T'Challa and then give it to somebody else? Mm-hmm. It's happened to other major characters because, you know, Black Panther has always been great, but he's always been a B-list character the last 20 yeah. years, 20 maybe even 30 years, <sighs> up until his resurgence of popularity with the film. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, he's only been replaced, what, twice? But here's the thing with me, and especially when it comes to Black Panther, Black Panther is, like, the most human of all of the, like, superheroes that I know. And I don't mean, like, ooh, human, he has the lowest strength. No, no. I mean, like, he routinely speaks with his ancestors, and there is, you know, there's always a real connection to family and to community and to those who came before and those who are still to come. So mm-hmm. if if anybody could pass on a mantle, even if it's painful, and I know it's so painful to certain people that, you know, T'Challa would not necessarily be at the forefront or Chadwick Boseman would not be at the forefront, like, mm-hmm. of, of all the superheroes who have the possibility for change Black Panther is definitely Mm -hmm. the one Mm -hmm. I'm I'm hoping moving forward that that gives us a little bit more leeway to change things when they need to be changed but trust me we are never going to forget where it started we are never going to forget who made it possible to see us represented on the silver screen with our natural hair with all of our culture across the diaspora like Mm -hmm. honestly the Black Panther inspired me so much more to actually reconnect with a lot of you know ancestral roots and culture that I you know was on 
honestly kind of afraid to because the only representations I had seen were through the eyes and lens of non-black, non-African people. Mm -hmm. So like to see it represented on screen made a huge difference in my life because I'm like, oh my God, they got the Himba tribe right. Oh my God, they got mm -hmm. Zulu influences in there. Oh my gosh. Like they, they had so many different African cultures represented mm -hmm. and they yeah. were speaking Kosa. I cannot pronounce that correctly. I'm not going to try. I was going to try. I couldn't pronounce yeah, it I'm correctly. Just, but I think what that movie did was not only elevate what's possible mm -hmm. for people of color in the medium for both comics and for film, Absolutely. but it was done so in such a way that I have never seen a galvanizing thing as a celebration between this film and people who are not comic book fluent wanting mm -hmm. to see this movie. Like my sister, who's never picked up a comic in the world. She's like, no, I need to see this movie. Yes, I love it. <laughs> it had a very serious effect on people. What drew me to the movie was actually the costuming and the fashion that was represented in there because mm -hmm. you saw this beautiful blending. I'm suddenly drawing a blank on his name, but he has this beautiful stone lip plate in, in a perfectly manicured Tom Ford suit yes. that matched in color. I'm like, yeah, oh you saw the, the Afrofuturism of it all. Yes. That yes. you saw the blending of the modern and mm -hmm. the futuristic and the past all in one like mm -hmm. setting. And yeah, that's and what, and that's the impact of it. And I think when people look at it, it's like, oh shit, what if we just stayed in Africa and did this? I don't know. Right. <laughs> what if it <laughs> right. done that? But what it did was it gave you hope and it gave you like this really fun and meaningful connection. Exactly. It 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 showed you everything from pastoral life, like where, you know, they sent Bucky kind of out to the open nature. Just do your thing, chop mm -hmm. some wood, chat up some women who are, you know, feel sorry for you because you're probably getting the worst sunburn anybody has ever seen. <laughs> and also, just in case you go crazy again, ain't nobody out here. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. They're ain't like, nobody out here for you too. But yeah, we saw that. And then, you know, we also saw this beautiful monolithic city with all mm -hmm. this technology and so much of the technology was blended into natural forms and you're just going god damn this is absolutely gorgeous gorgeous yeah mm -hmm. and yeah it, it, exactly what you said it's both afrofuturism uh, a modern day representation and still harkens back to a lot of traditional and cultural stuff which i don't think we've ever seen this kind of representation of the diaspora before absolutely because what happens is that what you witness is a sacrifice of mm -hmm. culture versus what you are now so mm -hmm. they never lost it and yeah. that's what you hold on to like you see it you're like oh okay well they still have their roots they still have their history they still have their culture and it hasn't been diluted it hasn't been lost they integrated very well into their present day Absolutely. and even their future out they didn't even lose their tribal culture they each Absolutely. had their own very specific tribal cultures but they were also wakandan on top of that and it mm -hmm. was great to see that they didn't have to sacrifice themselves to conformity in mm -hmm. order to exist together yes they just said how do we how do we do this now now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we don't have to build shield out of wheat and stone. We have now mm -hmm. holographic technology to do that and still keep ourselves <laughs> rooted in our culture and our tribes and our beliefs, which mm -hmm. was fantastic. Like, it was just, again, uh, I mean, we can go on and on about Black Panther all day. And like, right. Yeah. <laughs> Notice I am not stopping us. I know why I, sh I no, should. No, we have to move on because there's other, <laughs> there's other things. But there yes, are other this, things. This one we'll come page back has, to Black Panther. <laughs> yeah, this one page has sparked an entire 15-minute conversation. <laughs> right. And that's 
honestly, that's what a good comic book and a good story is supposed to do. So yes, yes. well, wait. That brings us to Princess Shuri and Wanna Play by Nacha Bustos. They did the story, the pencils, the inks, and the color, mm-hmm. and that's impressive. Like very um, impressive. Yes, I honestly kind of liked this slightly more simplistic style. It was it was a palette cleanser in a lot of ways, but you still very much oh the the expressions are lovely and wonderful. You still very much get a lot of detail without having to have like super heavy lines and whatnot i was able to focus a little bit more on the story with this one if that makes sense yeah well i think you could because it's literally they were just talking all the time like they Mm -hmm. were talking a lot so you had no choice (laughs) but to focus (laughs) in on like the conversation i think what it did was and i don't know if if i'm alone on this but like i felt like i was looking at an archie comic yes Oh my it god, was, yes. Yeah, it was very kind of like 1960s Archie style comic. And I have expected Archie to show up or Betty and Veronica. Like, hey, how's it going, T'Challa? Like, <laughs> oh my god. Jughead <laughs> over in the corner just eating their version of Just a eating a hamburger in Wakanda. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, these it's Wakanda the, burgers are the best. Yeah, like the style of it was cute. And it, it, I was like, I've seen this before. I've seen it before. And there's nothing against Archie comics because, you know, I mean, oh, it, no. I, yeah, I, I grew up in on 7 Eleven Archie mm-hmm. comics, Herpy, and like getting those things, the digest. I wasn't <laughs> expecting this, is what the point is. Like, it yeah. was a very cute story mm-hmm. with Shuri kind of like, hey, this is what we're doing. It's kind of like our masquerade celebration, you know, or the Night of the Dead and that situation that it was really cool and the fact that they again are exploring their culture in ways that you don't see but what I also noticed that they're exploring their culture and everyone's wearing like Avengers costumes oh my god the dude with those beautiful braids just kind of like walking through with the Iron Man mask on the little kid yeah. with like the thing I was like oh my god this is comedy I love it this is comedy yes yes like the, the kid that was also like you saw like the one dressed up as Miles Morales just like I was like wait um, I saw a guy who was dressed up as like either yeah I think there was a guy who I saw who was dressed up either as Power Man I definitely saw a little girl dressed up as Doctor Strange and mm-hmm. Brother Voodoo I did see that <laughs> I loved it I thought they, they were going to be dressed as people who had died of Wakanda not just like it being Wakanda Halloween Wakandaween <laughs> <laughs> Wakandaween <laughs> just saying yeah i thought it was gonna be more culturally sensitive and then you got the little girl with the pink fist running around (laughs) right right i'm like yeah you know i'm still not mad at this i'm still not mad at because it it shows a little bit of you know okay wakanda has opened up and now there is an exchange of, of culture and it's not a somber day of the dead it's it's more halloween esque a little bit more western esque and where everybody's just kind of dressing up and doing their own costume oh my god we suddenly have this giant ninke nanka yes so kind of like a spirit slash dragon type creature of mythos yes and it's from west african folklore so take that europe <laughs> you're not the only one with dragons just no, saying this dragon specifically steals <laughs> disobedient children so yes <laughs> right oh my good god take that Krampus. <laughs> <laughs> That is exactly what I thought too. I'm like, Krampus? No. 
<laughs> but I, oh, I loved it. I thought it was great because there's this really weird thing that has especially been going on with Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power coming out and them yeah. having a dwarven princess who is very dark in feature and she is, as she well is, as, yeah. you know, the beautiful darks. Oh yes. my God, the black elves. Oh. I've, I've, trust me, I can have a whole podcast just discussing <laughs> the discourse of that whole thing. I've unfortunately seen so many completely uninformed comments of, well, but th- this is all based on European folklore, da 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 da. I'm like, um, I'm sorry, motherfucker. Do you think that Africa does not have analogous creatures that correspond with dwarves, with elves, with fairies, mm-hmm. with with dragons, with like a lot of the mythological creatures you're thinking of? We also have in Africa, yes. like yeah. like we have them too. Why are you mm-hmm. so mad that we're we're in your story? So come on, you know why this. they're mad. You know why oh. they're mad i know i know why they you are know why they're really. mad because even in a fictional fantasy world a white man has no people of color in it. right or when he did they were always described as the bad guys yes there's no people of color in particular white men's fantasy world even if it's mm-hmm. fiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like you can have talking trees <laughs> you can have right. wizards you can have elves you can have talking spiders you can have all this shit but you know black people's where i draw the line right i can't believe that <laughs> i can believe, I can believe in I can't believe a, that. I can believe in Shilob. I can believe mm-hmm. in a in a spider the size of a Mack truck that mm-hmm. can talk. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that a black person would show up anywhere in that world. Anywhere in that. <laughs> anywhere in that. No, no. I, that's where I give up. <laughs> <laughs> but but I guess getting back to this story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Yes, again, toxic fandom can be an entire podcast by itself. (laughs) Right? Because of that kind of toxic fandom, it's great to see our culture and our mythologies represented. And clearly, we have the things too. So, ha 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 ha. (laughs) Yes, we do have the things. (laughs) But again, we have the things, but I do have to roll Mm -hmm. my eyes again. Because even in this story, which is wonderful, Mm -hmm. we have the white person saving the day. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> love Carol. Love, mm-hmm. love, love, love Captain Marvel. Love her to death. I don't think that she should have been the one to save the day because then Ch- T'Challa comes later. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, T'Challa, T'Challa finishes the job. Yeah, he finishes it, but it takes away the moment. Like, yeah. like he could have been the one to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Carol should have been the person to do it. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm definitely there with you on that. I, it would have been great to see, you know, Shuri, Okoye, and, and T'Challa handle situation and not need carol to come in and do anything that would have been mm-hmm. absolutely perfect but i'm also i'm not mad i'm not mad, I'm not mad either no i'm not I'm mad, mad either I mean, again you you have <laughs> it's such it's such a tenuous balance it isn't is a it? tenuous balance because the thing is that you have to understand like you know the, the if there was going to be avengers who showed up it was going to be carol it was going to be cap mm-hmm. it was going to be thor like mm-hmm. this, oh. this is these are his friends these are the people mm-hmm. he's worked with so you're going to expect somebody to show up that is going to be a you know a non-person of color so i think what i'm expecting and it may not be what everyone else is expecting but again it's that it goes into the conversation of those white savior moments mm-hmm. where we didn't need it really in this. Yeah, yeah like i said love girl and this is not to go against any you know, white character oh yeah no, no no i just think that when you have this setup mm-hmm. and you, you're talking about these things and carol saves the day and then like t'challa comes in and just kind of like poo-poos the dragon <laughs> like, right <laughs> it's a no 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 <laughs> 
But and that's the funny thing is it wasn't even a, a dragon; it was a summon. It was a construct. Yes, it was a summon. Yeah, yeah. Because they were like, "Oh my god, it's Aluku Sana." I probably just butchered that. I'm so sorry. Uh, another mythical hero, and the kid's like, "I why didn't he return to this?" Oh, mm-hmm. it's the king. Yes. I'm just like, "Oh my god, that is awesome." My only small gripe, my and it's honestly it's a small gripe, is he called the child a warlock. Mm-hmm. I happen to practice witchcraft, and warlock is a very very specific word and it means oathbreaker it's mm-hmm. person who makes deals and then goes back on their word they are not trustworthy and they deal with very dark messed up magics so i'm just like oh so yeah for him to call that little one a warlock i'm like oh no no please 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 don't put that on their head because that's that's a very powerful loaded word or lock them into the destiny of being a terrible person later on oh well you're a warlock no 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 they're not they're just a magic user please please don't please don't put that on a child well, too late. not only did he call him a warlock right. he's like i'm gonna send you to school with a bunch of warlocks too right. i'm like oh my god but i'm like hmm, maybe we'll see this child in future strange academy probably yeah probably i think it's very cool that they even discuss that and mm-hmm. it just shows that you know wakanda has like everything oh like, heck yeah young magic users everything mm-hmm. like, I, I i love it though i absolutely love it because again it harkens back to the fact that this is a modern city with Afrofuturism, but still very deep tied to traditions. And mm. I like that they touched on this. And I also like the fact that they didn't treat magic as anathema or as uh, as a bad thing, because mm-hmm. there are plenty of African countries. If you're a witch, it can get you killed real quick. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the fact that they took this a little bit more lightheartedly and that they were like, okay, well, we need to train you because that that could have been disastrous. On a yeah, but I mean, and- I think what we have is Wakanda understanding that you know if they decide to treat magic badly then they would mm-hmm. treat the mutants badly as well mm-hmm. because you know either way it's just people with abilities that are not normal for a regular person so exactly. I, I can't see them be like oh you're a magic user you're automatically like you know disqualified from being good <laughs> right like i don't think they would have done that at all yeah no i love it and i and i love that they end the the comic with them all sitting around playing a card game based on the cards that those kids were playing with mm-hmm. it's so much yeah. fun <laughs> and of course sure is absolutely whooping T'Challa's ass like <laughs> I, I love the way she gloats I just I don't know there's something so fun and so sibling like between Shuri and T'Challa I love mm-hmm. that they always represent that very brother sister kind of connection whether it's in the movies or in the comic books you can always feel that kind of that sibling connection where they absolutely have each other's back but they're also going to mock each other at any given point they're like well maybe you just suck at this game <laughs> yes yeah. but I do love the subtle shade that <laughs> came through when they were trying to figure out what Avenger was going to show up and she was like yeah check the food stalls because Americans have like really improper eating habits and the first thing out of Carol's mouth was like hey I heard the food here is good even Carol like, oh. knows to get the food in while you can <laughs> I yeah that. I thought this was a fun st- I fell in love with the art style as I kept reading mm-hmm. but I think it also gives a little playfulness to T'Challa that's not there always because he's always so serious in his name story this one he's very playful he's very much like down to earth and i think again these these stories have been humanizing these characters mm. and bringing them down to earth uh, for lack of a better term so that they can see the impact they've had on people mm-hmm. because i think too often we we lose sight and and a hero becomes only a hero and we forget the very human aspect of the person behind the mantle of a hero and so i think this kind of rehumanization this slice of life is honestly an amazing thing and i love to see more 
more, but Runa the Valkyrie in a treasure worthy of a yes. king. I don't I don't know how I feel about um this particular story. It felt weird. It felt like it was a um I don't know. Like it's I, I'm indifferent about it. Like I, it felt kind of out of place that that Runa would be showing up mm-hmm. to the the I'm gonna say it, the whitest of white places to save white, white, white people. Yeah. In the middle of winter. Yeah. Just I mean, but they just, tried to explain yeah, there's, it. I don't know. They something about it. That it. Remember, it was, you know, there was a sigil of light because the actual statue is mm-hmm. part of Asgard, I guess. And that it was acting like a beacon. Yeah, yeah, the, the runes yeah, were so Asgardian. Yeah, so it was acting like a beacon, so she was checking it out. So I, it's an understanding because I think it was supposed to be a, a Thor statue as well. And it just so happens that there are people who are under it. And actually, there's, you know, something awful happening under this <laughs> underground. Right? Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I just didn't connect with this story, unfortunately. Like, I wanted to. I desperately wanted to. But like, I didn't really get a sense for Runa. No, no. It just, it felt more rote. Like, oh, I am a Valkyrie and this is Mr. Horse. I'm like, where's, where's Tess Thompson as the Valkyrie had so much effing personality mm-hmm. and you got so much of a sense of who she was as Valkyrie. Yes. That I'm expecting, you know, personality to really shine through for anybody else who is, you know, playing the role of a mm-hmm. Valkyrie. Um, And instead it just, it felt like slightly odd Shakespeare. It fell flat. Play. It fell flat just a little bit. I was like, oh, yeah. so this is, <laughs> I said, so this is Tessa Thompson versus Smog. Got it. This is, this, this, yeah. is, this is what this is. It was very weird. The story didn't come together for me. No, it didn't. And like the fact that Leif knew nothing about dragons or King's Gold or Kirk. But I mean, it's supposed to be the fact that they didn't, you know, it's always that trope that humans don't know what they're doing and that there are people who just have no clue of things they shouldn't be dealing with. <laughs> but I mean, it's literally a Thor killing a freaking dragon and like nobody knows any lore of this area. Like this, this didn't seem odd. And I mean, this is a point where the world knows about mm-hmm. Asgardian. And yet they're like, yeah, we kept trying to, you know, translate it using, you know, Norse and, and you know, proto-Norse and da da da. And I'm like, y'all know about our Asgardians and at no point in time did anybody think to ask an mm-hmm. Asgardian or somebody who knows about Asgardian? There wasn't a lot of characterization of the black character. That's in it, the so problem, I, right there. It didn't. That you hit the yeah. nail right yeah. on this because yeah. up until this point, we have had stories that have identified <laughs> with the black experience, and unfortunately, yeah. Runa doesn't have that. Her mm-hmm. her character is not rooted yeah. in that diaspora that we've kind of just been discussing with T'Challa. Mm-hmm. She is so kind of outside of that. I think think that that is probably the misstep of why we didn't connect with this because we're reading a story about black mm-hmm. voices and we're reading a story about why that makes sense and it's important for them. it doesn't it's not mm-hmm. important for women yeah it not not at all and and it's a shame because I, I wanted i wanted this to be a very different experience i wanted this to be something that was keenly from a from a very different angle and yet it it just it didn't did, it missed the mark, yeah. It and didn't. I think that also could be at fault of, of our own expectations of what it means to be a black mm-hmm. superhero in the Marvel universe. The upside to this conversation is that Runa represents a very specific person that their mm-hmm. experience of being a person of color doesn't define them. She's a Valkyrie first mm-hmm. and a woman of color second. Absolutely. So that's what was important. Yeah, and, and it, it showed. showed. Now, if we had the conversation of her experiencing, I don't want to say racism for the first time, but understanding 
understanding her place in this world as a woman of color and what that means. Mm-hmm. Runa mm-hmm. it just kind of exists in this world where she's in a guardian. And I think that our expectations are expecting yeah, absolutely. that. <laughs> that maybe it, it's not that for her. Like, what does it mean to be a Black as guardian? Yeah. Let's go through this. <laughs> right? Like, there's there's so much that we could unpack mm-hmm. and, and get to know about her and about how, you know, how being a Valkyrie has, you know, affected her versus how being a woman of mm-hmm. color has come into mm-hmm. play with that. And instead, we sort of got a dragon story that really had nothing to do with her experience as a person around around mythology, around very European mythology that, that really had nothing to do with no, anything. It was, it was very much like, oh, all in a day's work. I slayed a dragon. <laughs> this is what I do. Right? This is what I do. It was, it was not enough there for this to be a four or five pager story. It's in a book that there's a lot of uh, uh, weight to what this book is speaking on. And and when you had all these very much black experience Mm -hmm. stories, to suddenly have one that literally like race has nothing to do with any of this. Your experience as a person, especially as a black woman or a woman of color, had nothing to do with how the story went. It's like, uh, I'm not mad at the story, but the story seems very disjointed from the rest of what we've been Mm -hmm. reading. Mm Hey everybody, Nico here again. The death of Doctor Strange has had some really fascinating fallout on the Marvel Universe, and it also plays back into the fact that the Marvel Universe was in a really interesting place magically to begin with. So here for you guys, we have our discussion of the most recent issue of Strange Academy, followed by Nathan and Steven in discussion about sort of the state of the vampire nation in the Marvel Universe, spinning out of the events of Avengers, as well as 50 years of exciting horror comics at Marvel. As always, we love making this show for you guys three times a week, every week. That's Magic Monday. X-Men X Wednesdays and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many awkward teen dances week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I am Steven, you could find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder, and on Facebook as an admin for the House of Northstar. Hey everyone, I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bent. Oh, that's right. I've slightly changed my name. Look for Dame Red Thread now. I'm doing a little bit of a rebranding and you know, going back to where I should be. Yay. So, yes, I will see you all there. We love a rebrand <laughs> moment. I love a good rebrand. <laughs> Let's take a look back in the past at the glory and joy of school dances. I got to mm. ask everybody, what was your go-to DJ request? quest at a school dance not being there <laughs> not being there <laughs> oh my goodness whatever was hot and on the radio on ktu at the time for me <laughs> well we did sock hops so trust me n- not being there was my only request <laughs> we are covering strange academy number 16 
written by our man Scotty Young, mm-hmm. artist Umberto Ramos, with colors by Edgar Delgado and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. The steadfast team that has been trucking through this amazing book, giving us the goodest teens that we have ever seen. What an awesome continuation of this story. What a perfect reference to a thing that we all had some experience with, even if it was not going. This book lives in the moments where it gives us teen tropes and puts that magic spin on them. So as soon as I saw the uh, preview for this one, I was very excited. And of course, it did not disappoint. Yes. Can we talk about this cover? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Talk about it. Like a fr- It looks like a freaking Polaroid. I love it. Like, you know, that snapshot of your, you know, your evening, your event. And I just, I love all all the players that are featured there because you've got Eric, you've got Toth and Shaylee. Oh my God, those two. I love them just to bits and pieces. And it's Doyle and Emily oh, with some sort of a tentacle monster who I'm guessing is, is Dormammu. There's always <laughs> going to be a tentacle monster of some kind, right? <laughs> right, right. Especially at a teen dance. For all this cuteness and joy, the, the photo is a flame and burning, mm-hmm. giving us a hint that yeah. uh, things are not necessarily as cute as we might want them to be. Ah, the angst of adolescence. (laughs) But of course, before we get into the angst of adolescence, we cut in with Dr. Voodoo, getting extra dimensional, talking to the head honchos and discovering that their carte blanche unlimited use of magic at Strange Academy is having some serious effects mixed in with the death of Dr. Strange. Mm -hmm. Helgoth is not in a good state and we are in trouble. Poor Uh, kitty. Yeah. First things first, this initial segment of the story really set the tone for the rest of the issue. And I just have to say that the artist team blew it out of the park. This was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. This shit Mm -hmm. was beyond beautiful. Like it could be like a portrait on like a wall somewhere. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I've never seen this much use of pink and I still like it. I love (laughs) pink. So I was about it. <laughs> yeah, pink yeah. is my favorite color, so I was eating that shit up. <laughs> it's not really that natural of a color, so mm-hmm. it really does give that aura of alien, you know, that, mm-hmm. that 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 vibe, which I really dug. It was so beautiful. And I think with the backgrounds being sort of a watercolor style, that oh, is yeah. uh, really highlighted. You know, it's you don't even need to read the text to understand that we are not on Earth. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, it's so gorgeous done yeah and i love how how other earthly this feels and we know that they're pulling this magical energy from this dimension and understanding just what kind of an environment it comes from it it gives you a pretty good understanding of how everything is working at this point yeah Yeah. and i think the thing that really stood out to me was the reference to the death of dr strange Mm -hmm. that event has been pretty far removed from this story Mm -hmm. at times i wondered because it's over now when reading death of dr strange if we were going to see the kids show up in any way or if the ramifications were going to be felt at the school so on the one hand i was pleased to see this reference because it's obviously a big deal in the magical world Mm -hmm. on the other i was surprised that it hasn't come up a little more and i'm wondering how you guys felt about the removal of strange academy from the death of dr strange it's complicated 
Like I'm, I, I love the fact that they can exist independent of Doctor Strange because I didn't necessarily need, you know, some, you know, like a, a group of people or a place that, or a book that is tied solely to one character and that that character disappears. Oh no, what do we do with the book? So it's, it's great that yes, it's named after him, but he doesn't run everything. It is independent, does its own thing, and I think we're going to see more ramifications going forward. So I think it was like a like a really good setup in volleyball and now we're just waiting for scotty and his team to like spike it yay sports brawl (laughs) (laughs) no i definitely agree with it being like a really good setup because one thing that's really unfortunate with like a lot of books they have to like incorporate that stuff is sometimes it really kind of like halts the progress of the natural storyline yeah for sure. and what i love is that this is not at all really like halting the storyline at all and it's kind of just you know just naturally going along which is rare <laughs> i know right now that we're actually seeing some ramifications to the school having that connection to strange it's it's good seeing that kind of connection i feel it's better than than that Strange Academy Presents issue. (laughs) You mean the annual? Yes. So as much as this was, uh, for me, actually a very quick read this time, I really do love that the storyline did not feel affected. Mm -hmm. It was nice to just have the reference in there and just moving on with their lives. Yeah, and the one effect we do see, we flash forward to two weeks later and the students are getting ready for the school dance and we find out that they are in fact rationing magic now, which makes sense and obviously is going to have some consequences, which we'll see particularly with Calvin coming up. But we start with this scene of the kids getting ready for the school dance and we highlight a few characters that have had small references you know even just one or two panels but are now being featured a little bit more heavily we've got howie the canine boy and uh his sometimes video game opponent heidi but now it appears that they are maybe having a little bit of a romantic scenario oh hard step on me mommy vibes (laughs) exactly and we also see Ava from Terry Bloss's Reptile and then his Marvel yes! Voices Comunidades Yay! issue. Oh, I'm that so made me excited. so happy. <laughs> I am really excited not just for Ava, but for the highlighting of other characters and the expanding Mm -hmm. of our character base at the school and who might be brought into new storylines. What are you guys thinking about what we're starting to see in terms of this school really taking on a solid long-term life of its own? It was desperately needed. I Mm -hmm. always love my teen books. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that I liked a teen book because usually I'm like give me gritty and dark like if it's not <laughs> if it's not like deadpool mixed with batman i tend to like go eh, it's not weird enough for me i either need some more violence or some more you know boundary pushing like one or the and this one i just i fell in love with this book i'm like oh damn it i love this better not ever end <laughs> agreed i mean i'm a cw boy at heart i love my teen dramas <laughs> like, i would have never guessed right i know <laughs> This book was everything I wanted it to be. I'm still praying for a more teen-centric book in the X-verse, so we'll see. But this gives me my fill for now. (laughs) 
I mean, I feel like this book was made for me. So yeah, I, I absolutely love this book. And I'm, I'm glad they're bringing in additional students. And I'm so glad that this is getting a semester two because I feel like we'll be able to focus on these new students more. And one thing I really love about how they're giving like more spotlight with these newer characters is that it doesn't at all feel like they're sidelining the current character or the main characters. And I really love that. Yeah, I think it's so complicated in a big teen book like this to make sure that everybody gets their spotlight. And Scotty Young does an amazing job of just taking a couple panels and, you know, reminding you of who's dating, who's having conflict. So you might not see a certain character or set of characters a lot in a particular issue, but they're always referenced. They're always kind of in the background and doing things, and they really seamlessly come back up when it's their turn to take the spotlight. Absolutely. I agree. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, going back to Ava for a second, this was something that we talked about a lot in the Comunidades coverage, which is how rare it is to see a character from another creator in another book make that seamless transition onto the page for like a a big book like this and we're really starting to see her join this team and add to it and I'm I just want to hear what your guys thoughts are about Ava in particular going forward if we're going to see her really be a main character or if she's more likely to be a guest star I really hope they they move her into main character status because she's got too much like good snap quick wit and like she's she's too good to just relegate to a background like how do (laughs) like she literally came in and had what like two three panels and just killed it in like three sentences so like you you can't just put her in the background she has to be in the book she has to i agree i think what the most beautiful thing about uh her appearance was is that scotty young did a really good job of interpreting uh her sass right on the page and it just felt like it it felt like you just read reptile and then you read this and it was like it was the same writer writing her so her bite is still there, and I, I dig that so much. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, she's written exactly the same as she was in Reptile. It's a perfect transition between the two books, and they did wonderfully with this. Yeah, I think it would be a really good opportunity for them to transition her into more of a bigger role into the new semester. <laughs> Indeed. This book is interesting because when we talk about ideas of representation, we're talking both about, you know, ethnicities in the world that we recognize, but also these various corners of the Marvel Universe, you know, where we've got people from Limbo and Weird World and Asgard. So there's that constant weaving of ideas of representation. And Ava makes a lot of sense as a character to come in and remind us that as we're mining the different places where the characters can come from and the magics that they can bring, it's not just these other dimensions that we know about. It's ancestral magics that are very recognizable and real to us that can add so much more to our concept of magic at Strange Academy. Yeah, Terry did 
did a really good job of setting up, her, you know, that specific style of magic that she uses. So it to me, she's already got such an iconic power signature. And here, like in the book, like just everything about her is so recognizable. Ramos did such a beautiful job with that smirk, you know, and and showing like the attitude on page and he still got the necklace down and her signature pinks and violets. Ugh, just everything about her is, I think she's going to end up being my favorite character in the book. Right? And I mean, what a concept that people of color can have magic too. (laughs) And that magic isn't always just going to look like everything that you've normally seen. Yes, it's going to be much more tied to, you know, cultural background, heritage, like ancestral magics. And they do it in such a way that does not feel patronizing, at least not so far that I've seen. If somebody else thinks differently, by all means, feel free to point that out. But yeah, it it feels like a natural kind of magic, not like a, hey, we're going to stick some extra pinatas on top of this so you know this person is from, you know, South America. And oh, we're going to put like, you know, uh, you know, the scary African mass to make sure that you know that this person is coming from. No, it just, it feels like a natural magic, but very much tied to culture and heritage. And I freaking love it i'm here for it it's funny because the fashion does feel very much like a, a teenage dance that they're getting ready for and i'm like yeah no this actually this actually tracks and it's it really does cute they had cute clothing they did and i'm a sucker for a high collar right like it didn't look frumpy and it didn't look like huckery which i'm sorry but there are just i'm not approved by any means but there are some dresses that i have seen for proms and i've just been like what stripper closet did you get that out of because that's not appropriate for like anybody at a child's dance (laughs) yeah i'm all about people feeling empowered you know in their sexuality but Mm -hmm. i have seen some because my sisters you know they were in high school after i was well out Mm -hmm. and i was uh uh, jarred sometimes when I would uh, send them off to their to their proms and right. see what some of the the other people were wearing. I'm like I'm like the teachers like like adult teachers would not be allowed to wear this stuff to a dance exactly. But this just felt so appropriate and so cute. Mm-hmm. I and I think it's funny we've got references, you know, shows like Euphoria and on the other side of the spectrum, Riverdale, really <laughs> giving us a certain concept of what. Teens are are doing and into and you know we talk a lot when we cover this book about how there's a natural instinct for writers to go dark when it comes to teenage stories mm-hmm. and find the conflict in kind of torturing them a little bit mm-hmm. and this book never goes there it yeah. always finds conflict in relatable situations that you know are even positive you know it's two people with two kids with great ideas that just don't necessarily mesh Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to make it all work and i think it's really refreshing to see that right now in a teen book and see how it translates into things like our understanding of what they would wear and how they would behave in these little moments where they're just asking each other to go to the dance yes (laughs) right and i loved watching them help each other too getting dressed especially doyle and eric right (laughs) that was such a cute moment i'm so glad toth asked shaley out to the dance (laughs) 
So who is this redhead who has stepped in like the wolf of <laughs> Wall Street? Oh, I was going to ask. I thought maybe I just didn't recognize him. I was Googling trying to get an answer because I knew we had a name for Howie and Heidi. Mm-hmm. Howie's is on the page, but Heidi, I did not have a name for. So I was Googling around and trying, I like skimmed through the entire series trying to figure out if this was a character that I had missed. I don't think I've ever seen this character before even even in like all the little side books that we've seen strange academy show up in so all right i'm glad yeah. y'all agree because i felt cr- a little crazy like did i miss this character <laughs> right well because he comes on page so well developed <laughs> he does he really does it's like it's so crazy because you just believe he's there and it makes right. sense because there's so many kids here of course there's going to be a rando that we don't necessarily recognize <laughs> i do hope we get a name for him though because i'm interested in, in in where they're going with him you know right he seems like such a heel he really does <laughs> So yeah, we do have this unnamed redhead shooting his shot with Ava and getting turned down. And again, like like just fourth time, (laughs) the perfect example of we see Toth, you know, have a lot of success. This guy get totally shot down and Doyle trying to figure out just exactly what to do. That's all the conflict we need from a story about romance. You know, it doesn't need to be anything tragic or angsty. It can just be three kids trying to figure out exactly how to ask a date to the dance. Oh, my god yes it's a great inclusion to the story seeing the way that the characters interact romantically with each other but i mean it's it's not like the main focus on things as far as i can tell so yeah i i'm enjoying it like that i think it's the cutest shit ever personally (laughs) and i really like how this book doesn't also have to rely on like a lot of like shock value stuff when it comes there like Mm -hmm. romantic stuff and then also for anyone listening if someone could like photoshop a collage a doyle like anytime he's turned pink that would be the cutest (gasps) shit on the planet oh my gosh i want that so like you know maybe that thing like you was it on like the simpsons that like meme where it's like i'll do i'll do it for him and like oh yeah yeah do it for her (laughs) yes yeah that would be cute as fuck oh my gosh (laughs) thank you in advance i would love to see like a little flashback (laughs) sequence of just rather than doing you know like all the times things have gone wrong a flashback Mm -hmm. of doyle just loving emily and turning pink every time he sees her so unnamed redhead is having a little more trouble than just getting a date to the dance he is suffering under the rationing of magic and needs a hookup gets a phone call and we of course junkie he is a magic junkie we are getting some serious dealer metaphors and he goes to meet his dealer and it is of course calvin mm-hmm. and now we get into the meat of one of the angstier and more difficult parts of the story um calvin is dealing magic and gets caught and yep. is promptly expelled when we were covering issues 13 and 14 a lot of us complained that we didn't like where this calvin story was going we really don't like to see that character who breaks bad and you know goes off the path and makes the bad decisions especially in a book like this where everybody is making best intention decisions at least if not good decisions and so we were complaining about that and raven brought up an amazing perspective about calvin as somebody who's been through the adoption system and how that would affect 
affect his choices. And it completely changed the way I look at him. And one of the things you said, Raven, was that a child like Calvin might feel like he really needs to keep up or he will be disposable. And he is, of course, disposed of by Dr. Voodoo in this issue. And I wanted to revisit that discussion and what we see here because it really is the heartbreaking worst case scenario that came out of that discussion on 13 and 14. It broke my heart. It honestly just, it shatters me because, because of where he comes from, because of his circumstances, him turning to being a dealer, uh, when he has already pretty much been told by the school that he is disposable, that they can just send him back to that horrible system. He's trying to find any way he can to survive. He is in absolute survival mode and that, that unfortunately has led him to a path where he's become a dealer because a dealer is how he's going to be able to survive and for voodoo to not listen to him for for voodoo to like not take for none of the fucking adults to actually pay attention to what's going on and why this boy is so quickly just falling off the path you know like they they showed him oh yeah well uh i guess you know we can't take care of you anymore you're just gonna go back to the system what the fuck did they think he was going to do? Misery was his focus. Misery almost destroyed him. And now they just threw him out? Like, it, oh God, it breaks me. And I'm so mad at, at Dr. Voodoo for doing that. And I'm so mad at the adults for just letting this kid fall by the wayside. Because this is a very, very hard and real truth especially when it comes to the adoption industry. If you're not a baby or a very, very, very young child, your likelihood of getting adopted is exceedingly low. You're usually abused within the system. And you, for the most part, just get thrown out when you hit 18. And you don't even know if you have any resources. So quite a few, uh, quite a large chunk of the homeless population currently is kids who aged out of the the adoption system who are like 18 19 maybe even 20 years old like the moment you hit 18 you're out but like when you don't know that you have resources when you don't know where else to go or how else to function like this ugh, it's heartbreaking because it's absolutely everything that would happen to a child who is part of the adoption system and it sucks yeah uh, i completely agree it just feels like everything just keeps getting compounded on top of him you know he has to start over with magic and then and and then they're reserving magic so how does he really you know try to catch up when he can't even do it because they're not letting him so it just feels like the world is crumbling on top of him and that panel where you where he actually says the words you are expelled and you see the shattering like i heard that i heard the shattering yeah that was that was oh, that was painful yeah incredibly painful um i feel so so bad for for calvin that he doesn't have any adults that are there to truly listen and support him and understand his situation i honestly if this is what leads the characters to that future state that doyle saw i completely understand that's a good yeah. point i didn't even think of that i thought it was really cute for there to be at least one student that 
that like immediately comes to support him and you know as someone that also works in education it's just so hard to see like someone immediately give up on like a student and that was yeah that's pretty sad to see (laughs) i mean actually coming from voodoo yeah yeah. i think it's it's an interesting effect of what has gone on with the death of dr strange and the sort of need to heal hogoth there's a way in which we can view this as a dereliction of duty caused by just the overwhelming stresses of having to be a headmaster and i'm not sure if that is the book attempting to excuse a an otherwise really good character for an absolute screw up or if it is just sort of the cleanest way to get to the heart of this story which is calvin having that feeling of disposal and the kids needing to be the ones to educate the adults about the fact that regardless of what's going on in the greater environment these kids still need care and they need to be taken care of and if you have taken on the duty of educating and you know raising them because they're all living on site it's up to you to figure out how to do that in the face of bad circumstances And we'll talk about this a little more, but of course, some of the relief that we get from the situation is Emily coming to his aid at the end of the book and basically refusing to let it go. And, you know, she's going to stick with him and figure this out, which of course means that she misses Doyle for the dance and Doyle is pretty heartbroken. Because she doesn't have a cell phone to let him know. (laughs) I know. I know. I I really loved the line. I have this with you right now that Hmm. I got so choked up i love emily so much so much it was it just it just added to the beauty of her character she she's a little bit white woman savory though oh okay i mean like that's completely (laughs) fair and i did i can't say i didn't have the thought i just adore her so much right it was like i'm I'm not even mad at her but i'm just like okay you got a little bit of a white woman savior (laughs) complex okay (laughs) but i'm not mad at you but don't don't worry about doyle i'm here right now it's just you and i'm like bitch Uh, I did feel so bad for Doyle. He needed to wait just a little bit, though. Just a little bit. Well, like, the fact that she couldn't... She's got his cell phone in her freaking hands most of the time. Like, Mm -hmm. you couldn't shoot him a text like, Hey, we've got a situation over here. I've got a a comfort or friend. I'm going to be a little bit late. Or, hey, could you come join us? Because, you know, Calvin really needs our support right now. Like, that? very fair. Like... (laughs) I'm like, girl, come on. So, you know, we get this the sort of montage moments of the girls and the guys getting ready for the dance. And again, we get this moment of Doyle and Eric coming together and having a, a bit of a friendship moment. So we're maybe starting to see that bond develop. Again, it's just one of the great Only in Strange Academy things where these little moments give us such an understanding of who these characters are and develop them in a way where, you know, it really does feel a lot of the time like we are looking at the next generation of characters for Marvel Comics and these are all characters that I could easily see having a spotlight on Avengers on their own titles and I love that we're getting that from not high action big fight stories but little moments where it's kids getting ready for a dance absolutely 
I love Desi and Zoe dancing, yes. like seeing all the little couples dancing. So you've got uh, Howie and Heidi, uh, Toph and Shaylee, and then Zoe and Desi all on panel doing their little dances with, okay, some of them have some separation. <laughs> <laughs> not, not Zoe and Desi, though. <laughs> but I love it. They all look so, you know, just cute and happy. And like, there's, there's so much to see and read in every single panel that it's it's like a story within a story within a story because if you go just up above you see like zelma giving that whole i see you <laughs> kind of thing going on <laughs> i'm like yeah that's definitely a teacher thing and then um what is it seeing uh hellstrom and jermaine standing by the punch bowl like okay i could do this i could do this i could do this oh god i have to dance at the dance floor no <laughs> like there's so much going on and it, it's so much fun i, love I also it. i also really loved zoe and Dez's specific panel because it wasn't sexualized it was just love like it was just it was just beautiful like they just really loved each other and there was nothing sexy about it which I really enjoyed yes mm -hmm. thank you giving us realistic lesbian relationships exactly <laughs> exactly yeah it's it's a nice moment in time for these characters it's a great slice of life you know and they've they've been through a lot they deserve to have this this night to just have fun and it's it's great that we get to see that it's really cute and i just love the panels with them at the dance and i'm forgetting the names of those like really tall like cyclops looking people the mindless the mindless. Oh, the mindless i just love how they're in the background like chaperones are they still called mindless or are they mindfuls there is one mr mindful gotcha um, okay that's what i was confusing <laughs> yeah. yes i loved that too by the way robbie that was a good point <laughs> It's just like a nice little fun detail that I like. But of course, not everybody is having the happiest dance. We've got, uh, as we talked about, Emily sort of diverting from her going to go meet Doyle to help Calvin out and Doyle being left hanging, waiting outside the dance for her who never shows up. You know, again, just good conflict. Not you know, a little bit angsty. This is like the most angsty that we get, but nobody's doing anything villainous. It's just teen problems causing conflict. I don't know. Those roses didn't really ask for uh, an incineration, but <laughs> no, I felt I felt heartbroken for him. He's he's our precious little baby, right? And he looks so cute in his little suit. So cute. He really does. Oh goodness. And oh. Emily looks fabulous with sneakers. Yes, oh I, my God, loved, I loved it. I loved the chucks. the The red and white chucks were so cute. I'm like honestly, like most. I think most of the kids are wearing, you know, either like nice loafers or flats in some way or another, and I love that because as much as I love heels, heels on children should not ever be a thing their bones are too soft and i've seen the very very bad ramifications of wearing heels from a young age on my parent <laughs> oh it is not good it is not good so i'm just like yes kids in flats thank you that looks awesome that and they're really kind of cute so yeah i love right that. i mean they're they're children that want to dance i feel like sneakers make sense yeah 
So of course we've got the setup for the final two issues of this book before we Mm -hmm. end semester one and take a little break before semester two happens. Mm -hmm. We've seen these characters rally around each other when they're in times of trouble. We saw it with Zoe when she finally revealed her big secret and nobody missed a beat. They were with her. I've got a lot of hope that when Emily takes this to the group, they will rally around Calvin as well. Yes, but her failure to communicate with Doyle creates tension in a very natural way yeah mm-hmm. so he's i i have a feeling that his feelings are yeah gonna be a little bit a little bit hurt there's definitely gonna need to be some talks possibly some misunderstandings but i love the fact that they created tension in a very natural way versus like having to you know create like some hype where like oh somebody saw emily walk into calvin's room and oh my goodness what's that it, this just feels like oh you, you missed the dance and you didn't talk to him about it and you know he had a lot of feelings about being able to go to this dance with you and da, da, da. so i like the fact that they're creating tension without creating rumors yeah i like that too actually that's a that's a good point it feels a lot better than that oh my goodness she's cheating on him i hate that <laughs> right. so much oh my god same yeah. <laughs> like that that is like one of my least favorite tropes is oh my god i saw them walk into this room with this other person they must be be cheating i hate that i hate Agreed. that so freaking much I have yeah they didn't go the gossip girl route <laughs> <laughs> well and and like to me this feels more natural because i i'm a woman with a lot of male or mask presenting friends so well that and i'm pansexual so like you could start a rumor with me walking to any room with anyone <laughs> so <laughs> it's like oh do we, uh, no i hate i hate that trope so i, I love the they didn't do that here it's oh it's so good yes same i uh i also i like knowing with confidence even though we see the drama here and we're absorbed in the drama we do know emily is a communicator she talks her problems out and i know that there's going to be a positive resolution so this isn't like it's heartbreaking because it's at the moment but you you still have that happy feeling knowing there's still going to be like a nice ending to it hopefully and last but not least of course we have our data page at the end of the book reminding us of the school dance rules just another way in which this book makes the universe expansive and gives us a better understanding of how magic functions for these teens these are always so funny to me you know just the little jokes that they slip in about spatial displacement spells and the various punch bowls (laughs) i i like that this little memo was written prior to um the discovery of 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 Horgoth and that they had to make it a little note at the bottom saying uh, that spells actually won't be used to enforce the distance between them. And yeah, I also like that they are providing food for the different nutritional requirements of their students (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i did really like that i need to see the dance battles (laughs) i need to see any and all conflicts should be solved via dance battle not magical duel i need to see that and i will say what i've said before where are my damn funko pops yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I need Seriously. a Doyle Funko Pop oh and a Zoe God. one right now. Damn you know, it. If, you know if they do a Doyle one that they're gonna do a regular one and then they're gonna do a pink, a pink one. one. That oh needs my God. to happen. You imagine That's like so a Valentine's Day variant one? Oh, oh my, my goodness. goodness. 
this Listen, time next year i want to see it like right we are marvel we and funko we are gonna be throwing money at you <laughs> right marvel funko i just got a new job that hello please yes let me throw some money at you <laughs> <laughs> i very rarely buy funko pops i have to really love the character that i'm looking right? for and a regular and pink <laughs> uh, doyle <laughs> would instantly like just i would have to have to get it or like an emily cappy oh my god oh a giant size gus please <gasps> yes Ooh. How about just every single student? Right? Right? <laughs> yeah, they could right. definitely do a shit ton of waves with them. Oh my god, yes. I love that we have become the uh, product development arm of right. Funko Marvel <laughs> Strange Academy. Um, Please hire us. We're doing this work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my weekends are open. We can do it. <laughs> oh, this is an amazing, amazing uh, issue as always. It felt like a short read, but then again, that's that's probably just all of us because we always want more. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Can't wait for the next two. <laughs> I need to know how this semester ends. <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another segment of Extras for Podcasts, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at AOA on Twitter. That's AOA on Twitter. Hello, and uh, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Today, we're here to talk about a subject near and dear to our hearts, vampires in the Marvel Universe. So we're just going to talk about some of the overlapping vampire themes going on. It's just some of the history of vampires in the Marvel Universe and all that fun stuff. What is your take on the current situation with the vampires. Tonight is a good night to talk about it. As you know, it is a perfectly full moon tonight. Here in this part of Illinois, it is extremely clear. It is gorgeous, shining full moon. Very spooky vibes. My current feelings on the state of vampires in the Marvel Universe, of which there are several kinds right now, is that they are not sexy enough at all. Not even close. Dracula looks like shit. <laughs> Dracula looks like hammered shit, and that sucks. The rest of the Draculas are not hot, decidedly. And the Sevalithi vampires are pretty cool. I read all of their appearances again today. Digging the vibe, but not hot. Definitely no Gene Colton Dracula going on anymore. Uh, and that sucks, because vampires should inherently just be the most sexy beings in all of creation, right? Because, like, yeah. think about it. Like, gently nibbling at somebody's neck. <laughs> they replace the sexuality of the groin with the sexuality of the mouse. Like, vampires are an inherently sexual creature, in my opinion, as a horror monster. Dracula is best when Dracula's hot. Gene Colan knew that extremely well. Yeah, ever since this new, like, long, white-haired battle Dracula has showed up, I've just not been digging him. I'm sure there's been fun, cool, sexy vampires, but, that, like, and I'm not talking, like, sexy, like, Vampirella or something like that. I'm just talking, like, comb your hair and look nice and be commanding or whatever. I get none of that most of the time. It's the thing that's missing, right? Like, just that sexy factor. Like, is living in Chernobyl sexy? No, <sighs> like, decidedly or... not. <laughs> Not really. Like, it's Unsexy. sexy if you're, like, an urban explorer, but, like, otherwise, it's it's not super sexy, right? Building your vampire nation in Chernobyl. Yeah. And Blade is carrying the entire vampire nation of sexiness. Like, Blade is literally just the only one doing it right now. <laughs> now, if Spitfire showed up, too, then she would be carrying part of the sexy mission for her vampires. Yeah, she's fine. 
Oh, Ghost Blade, not Spitfire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, look at Zara's uh, Sarge. What the fuck? What about Louise from like, Wolverine? Louise is fine. Not my type, maybe. But she's a vampire now. I'm excited for her to go off and do things. I don't particularly dig her relationship with Wolverine. But the, the, the state of the vampires is terminally unsexy. So hopefully that changes soon. Can we get a redesign on Omega Red? Because I'll count Omega Red as a vampire. I mean, like, especially right now with his current intricate plotted storyline with the vampire nation and you know Krakoa I mean he's his powers make him a vampire to begin with I guess I could count Celine but I never think of Celine as like a vampire's vampire right <laughs> just like a she is. <laughs> in Celine's case like it's definitely her ex gene but also like Celine is like what I would like to refer to for the listeners who maybe understand this Celine is like the John Wick in Berserker vampire more than any other kind of vampire it's the only kind of vampire that Celine is is just like this immortal like caveman cavewoman turned vampire monster person. If you counter in vampires, then the sexiness portion does tip a little bit, at least. Like, yeah, she's sexy. She's evil as fuck, but she's sexy. But. Yeah, if we're counting Celine, then like, obviously that raises the bar quite a lot, but she has to balance out with Omega Red, which, I mean, Decidedly X Lives is maybe helping with that perception a little bit, and I think Age of X-Men did, but like, it's just, he sucks. <laughs> Agreed. So, the X-Men themselves, right? They have a long history with vampires. Mm-hmm. We've got showing up in Uncanny 159. We've got that beautiful Storm Dracula story where Chris Claremont told it and Sienkiewicz was on the pencils for it. Fuck yeah, sign me up. Yeah, Sienkiewicz's first work on X-Men. I was just rereading that and I was like, holy shit, that shit's amazing. That's a great story. That's from back when vampires were sexy at Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) They were. Those are the sexy vampires we want. (laughs) Yes. And also just like threatening and cool. Storm is awesome in that issue. I've talked a lot about that, but I I love her just like Cavalier Fang Haven thing. It's, It's really good. That and the annual. That's X-Men Annual 6 that they continue that story and Kate get possessed by Lilith. That tie with X-Men, Storm in Mutant X Universe never broke her vampiric thing so we had that alternate reality Bloodstorm which was so amazing they brought back a different version of her right around Extermination with the original 05. Got Jubilee's convoluted story with vampires and yes. thankfully she is been cured thanks to a portion of the Phoenix Force that Quentin Choir gave up to restore her humanity. Yeah. Like do you have a favorite X-Men vampire moment? Or do you have a least favorite X-Men vampire moment too? <laughs> I was surprised actually that you didn't mention what if Wolverine became Lord of the Vampires, which is one of my favorites. But my favorite is definitely the Storm and Dracula story because I always love the stories where like some arrogant villain is like, oh, Storm will love me because I'm powerful and cool. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, Dracula. <laughs> like, Dracula, you could be my boyfriend, but with Storm, you don't have a chance. No, you have no chance. I have recently had the dubious pleasure of reading the tie-ins, but not the main story to Curse of the Mutants. And I got to say, that's probably the worst vampire content I have read with the X-Men so far. I would agree those tie-ins are... Not good. Not my favorite. Not my favorite at all. I have a like... whole book of them now. <laughs> that's great. What a mistake. I thought I was buying X-Men Curse of the Mutants. In fact, I was not. It's the, like the ancillary book to that. <laughs> I think I was there when you bought it. I thought it was the main story, too. Yep. Well, you know, I guess someday I'll learn. In lieu of sexy vampires and in lieu of good X-Men vampire stories, which we're definitely lacking in, I have been really enjoying the introduction of the Sevalithi. Yes. Yeah. I went and reread all of their stuff. Just really cool. You know, a weird ancient royal society that has literally outlived the original reality that it hailed from or outdied because they're undead. I don't know. But they have lasted longer 
than their actual home reality, which is now probably a part of Blightspoke, have moved into a new reality that has red skies and constant solar eclipse, which I think is super cool. I love the extremely dark skyscraper architecture of the place. We see at first that it's welcoming to mutants. Joshua is hanging out there with his new vampire friend, mapping other worlds, but over time, slowly becomes oppositional to mutants through the influence of Merlin until it becomes occupied Merlin land. We have the two leaders, Countex, Oblia, and Ascura, who I read as like non-binary. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I read that into everything, but also yeah. because they are Countexes instead of Countesses or Counts. I think that's dope. I love it. Yeah. These vampires are not slaves to their bloodthirst. They are restrained and aristocratic in the way that like definitely Dracula and other related Victorian gothic vampire stories are. They're born from blood wombs, like giant pools of blood, which is, I think, extremely cool instead of like turned. They also seem to be oppositional to Earth's vampires. Yes. I love the Sevalethi because it goes back to that more aristocratic nature of like some of the classic vampires of lore, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Dracula, he's count, you know, he's aristocratic, he's charming, if nothing else. Even if he's a blood-sucking vampire, he's still like able to draw you in. You're just mesmerized by his charm, right? Yeah. So like they sort of harken back to that noble quality of the classic vampire. Whereas right now, especially with the Aaron style going on in Avengers, the vampires don't really have any of that right now. They're falling on hard times. They're kind of like, we're having a crystal method blood rave in a radioactive warehouse. Kind of, that's where they're at right now in the culture. I get it. The 2000s were a time. The Sevalithi definitely represent like a more like romantic version of the vampire story, which is something that I often like. You know, when Betsy goes to meet the Sevalithi in her capacity as Captain Britain, I like that she shows up in a horse-drawn carriage to this giant castle at night and she's in her like high-collar black dress with her hair up in like braids and buns. It's very much Dracula. It's very gothic and cool. I'm appreciating that and I'm appreciating the the subtle bits with death that we've gotten in several stories now between Wolverine and Excalibur where, you know, we know that death, the mutant death, the son of Apocalypse, is now a servant and a courtier in Sebalith for the Contexts and we see Louise Wolverine go to death and say, will you help us wipe out the vampire army on Earth? Because the Sevalithi are opposed to these, I guess, low-born common vampires instead of being an alien race of vampires. That says, like, absolutely, I'll help you out. I'll be your ally in this fight. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what could spin out of X Lives and Deaths of Wolverine with that. I know some people have asked where Louise is. I know you have. Yes. And I yes. like to think that she's planning something with death against the vampires, and I think that'd be really interesting. Death also swears his allegiance to the mutants just before the war in Otherworld, so I expect in Knights of X, Betsy to call on Death as an ally. It's so tough when you look at where would his allegiance have lied. Would he be mutant to his core, or would he be Sevalithian now? So, like, it's really cool that he was still mutant to his core. That's what he's been for thousands of years, yeah. right? I don't even think he's a vampire. Like, I like that you mentioned that. He was feasted on, like, he was fed on by the vampires. I don't know if Sevalithi actually turned people. I kind of feel like they would be disdainful of turning people. I feel like they think mm. that that's, like, what the shitty Dracula vampires do on Earth, right? It's like the whole, like, phalanx technarchy, like, mm. hierarchy kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. It, it is kind of like that. At least that's how I envision it. I, so I think death just, like, works for them. <laughs> but... 
he probably owes them a favor for stopping sucking his blood. We've, we learned that the only currency in Sephalith is literally favors. No, complex political intrigue is the word of the day. How very Romulan of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Sephalith do feel in a lot of ways Romulan to me, especially within the neutral zone. The Romulans are constantly attempting to provoke the Federation into attacking them first so that they will have an excuse to enter into a war without having to lose face by starting it. And that, to me, is Sevalithi all over. They sent an assassin, or somebody did, one of their assassins, to attack Betsy and her party in Otherworld. And when Betsy asks them about it, they deflect constantly. They talk about anything else, and they're just like, oh, well, you see, we have a long-standing rivalry with Avalon that is much older than you, and we don't really want to talk about who sent assassins where, or who might be responsible for starting a war in a tense time. Just know that we hate you. They reek of Romulan all the way through. I love it. Great to see. Like, I'm loving Romulan vampires. Okay. I mean, vampire Romulans already look like vampires, like cartoon vampires, so the connection is there. They do, with the ears and the haircut, the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see that. So we've got the kind of Romulan vampires going on in Sevalith, and we've got the stuff going on in Avengers. So, like, I know you talked about you loved Death of Doctor Strange Blade a lot. It's hard to say what I love the most. I love the Blood Rave, because I'm a big fan of the Blade movie, and I'm a big fan of the Crystal Method. So thank you, Danny Lore and Dylan Burnett for that one. Extremely good. But also, like, you know, the art is astonishing. Burnett does, like, an incredible job anytime they're on a comic. I've really become a fan of Danny Lore's writing. I'm also reading Lunar Room, which is about, you know, like, werewolves and mages and stuff, but bounty hunting. Very cool comic by Danny Lore. Everything about it, the creative team sings. I'm a big old Blade fan. I really love The Tomb of Dracula, and Blade 2 is, I think, the greatest superhero movie that has ever been made, still, to this day. I'll stand by it. Looking forward to Mahershala in that role as well. It's a book that feels made for me, and it works so well that I really wanted to see it turn into an ongoing series. And I think part of it is, like, Blade is written as a fun, interesting character with a really, like, wry sense of humor, which is what I like from Blade. Also, Dracula is written fun. Like, it's the first time I've seen white-haired Dracula look like, okay, I could see this guy being sexy in a, in a, in a way, you know? But it's also, like, the way he talks, the way he holds himself, his posture, his body language, the turns of phrase and the teasing way that he talks to Blade where he's constantly like poking him with a little word dagger but also kind of like seductive. Everything about that Dracula is what I want to see. I don't think that that is the Dracula we have ever seen in the Avengers. I would love to see that become what the character is like. It nails the Gene Colan version of Dracula. <laughs> that's I, that's the art but the Gene Colan era version of Dracula is such a monster but is also like a seductive monster and that's like something I really love to see from Dracula. I always love those classic X-Men ones like the first ones with Storm and Dracula just because I mean he's fucking seductive and like she falls for it a little before she realizes what's going on and you know takes her power and her agency back but like you know he's so seductive that even for a split second Storm thinks that he's seductive enough. Yeah he's not just like cruel and like a vicious warlord like the Aaron Dracula often is where he's just like oh I'm cunning and manipulative and that's all like Dracula has always been all of those things but also like Dracula like is in love with his own evil and like loves to do some shitty crime you know like that's what's so great about him in that old uncanny x-men issue where he's just like really confident in himself he, like he absolutely thinks he can get a date with storm and he absolutely thinks he can do it by being like a vile monster 
And that's what's needed. What's needed is not this person. There's something missing there. It, it doesn't have that certain je ne sais quoi. I would put it this way, even though the Dracula in Jason Aaron's Avengers is canonically bisexual or pansexual or omnisexual, due to that scene that showed all of his lovers being killed bloodily in front of him. And I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Mr. Aaron. That Dracula does not ooze the kind of queer sexuality that almost any other kind of Dracula in art does. And I don't know why, because it should, since that one is canonically queer. <laughs> one of the reasons why I've always loved vampires and Dracula, there's something so subversively queer about vampires in general. And <laughs> it's so amazing to see it all unfold. And now we're in an era we can actually get a little bit more explicit in our depictions of the queerness of vampires. So like, I'm totally here for that. And I hope that the future with vampires in Marvel does involve a lot more queer than we're already getting. Yeah, I mean, I always hope for that. It's not like we're lacking queer Dracula representation. This Dracula is on the page queer. And I very much appreciate that. I would just <laughs> like him to, you know, like, you know, be a little more flamboyant with it. Like, come on, put on like a nice cape, flap it around, twirl your mustache. I know he doesn't have a mustache. He used to. <laughs> You want, like, Lothario Dracula? I, I, want, I want camp-ass Dracula, because Dracula should be camp. Dracula should always be camp. Like, you can make some dark secrets, some dark, serious shit with vampires, but you gotta have Dracula camp. You can even camp. have Dracula be dark and terrifying, just not, like, dusty and dry bones. Like <laughs> He just doesn't have a certain it factor now mm-hmm. through any of the lines. But where do you think the vampire storyline is going to go? I'm very much hoping that the story, and I, I think it will, because it's, it's honestly more recent than it seems, because I know, like, comic book time as it comes out makes us all feel like it's been a year and a half since like three months ago but like I do hope and I think it will he continued the thread of death working on behalf of mutants while being a part of the Sebalithi court that is oppositional to Avalon and I think that the thread of death helping Louise and Wolverine against the Vampire Nation and by extension Omega Red the villain of X Lives I think that'll get picked up and I, I hope it gets picked up quickly not to say that I think they should hurry but I you know I, I hope it's not something that gets delayed until like the summer or next winter because I kind of want to read about that as soon as possible. I know a lot of people do not want more vampire stories but I always want more vampire stories. <laughs> like that was a turning point in the Wolverine series where I started to get more on board with Ben Percy's vision for <laughs> Wolverine and by extension the whole X-Force story because I saw the ways in which he used them and, and you know I'm sorry Ben Percy's vampires were sex in, in their own way like you know Dracula hasn't been but like I, I thought they brought some of that sexy noir mystique you had vampires in Paris. What's sexier than that? I love that this has turned into entirely like, are the vampires sexy or are they not sexy? What else is there about vampires? They're sexy as fuck. Yeah, I think that the sexy vampire arc in Wolverine would have worked a lot better without Vic Bogdanovic, personally. But, you know, I have said it before, it's a very similar style to Greg Pulo, who I really appreciate. I think it suffers from the comparison, and maybe that's on me, but I could use this being picked up by, like, a really strong visual artist with some, like, flair for the heavy inks and the shadows. Do you think that the mysticism of vampires should be addressed in the ongoing Strange series with Leah? Like, do you think it should stay in its own magical corner, you know, with Blade as the main antagonist? Do you think it should fall in line with mutants, or do you think it should kind of cross over to all of it? Well, as you know, I did not read the recent Darkhold series, which I feel like would be a good jumping on point since the vampires are ultimately a product of the Darkhold and tied to the Darkhold through the pre-cataclysm Atlantis wizards. And we can maybe get on into that on a later episode if we ever choose to, but that's a whole thing. Did you know Dracula is not the founder of Earth's vampires? He is the second lord of the Earth's vampires. He's the what? He's the second lord of the Earth's vampires after the Atlantean mage Varney, who, like Jim Varney, but not spelled the same. <laughs> 
who originated all vampires, and Dracula is one of his children, who eventually he passed the title of Lord of the Vampires to. That's the whole thing. Atlantean Wizards. So, I didn't read Darkhold, the current series, so I don't know where that stands, but if Clea is coming around in Strange, and if Darkhold has just wrapped up, there could absolutely be vampire stories coming up. Although, the place where I really expect this to go down in is Avengers, after the Multiversal Masters of Evil thing wraps up. Okay, that's fair. I could see Marvel wanting to put it in main flagship title the Avengers yeah. now so that would make a lot of sense in Darkhold though just just so everybody knows really the whole Darkhold offense got undone by the trial of Magneto because at the end of the book like Wanda was the uh, like embodiment of the Darkhold until she dies and then hey guess what happened she died I did not know that that sounds terrible I think if it had come out when it was supposed to come out last year then it would have had more meaning than if it came out at the same time the trial of Magneto came, was coming out I see. ended right yeah I think Knights of X is going to have to play a lot into vampires. I'd love to see Ben Percy tackle a whole vampire war between Sevalith and Earth vampires. Like, maybe making an event tied in with Jason Aaron's Avengers, and, like, like that would do the story F just. But I think otherwise it's going to be piecemeal, and it's never really going to complete on its own. Yeah, that is my fear, because it is built up so piecemeal. Like, it's a story that's built building since Avengers number 1 from 2018. So it's pre-Krakoan, and it has been picked up by the Krakoan era, and kind of co-opted into the giant Russia thing that's also been going in Avengers and all the X-Books. Like, ideally, Danny Lore and Dylan Burnett did an ongoing Blade series. Give me a series about the Sheriff of Vampire Town. That's, honestly, that would just rule. That's got my vote as to what I want to happen. We've been talking about Avengers and X-Men a lot and Wolverine, but there are some vampires going on in Moon Knight as well. We've got Reese. I forgot about Moon Knight somehow. I didn't even think about because those vampires feel separate somehow. They're not part of Vampire Nation. They do. They do feel separate. And then we've got Hunter's Moon was killed by a vampire so he's got all of this rage and hatred against vampires so like there's these threads building out throughout the marvel universe about these really strong vampire undercurrents so i'm hoping they're <laughs> going to use them for the show. you know now that i think about it those vampires probably are related to the vampire nation storyline because i distinctly recall because i just reread it in the wolverine series vampire storyline the vampire nation was just like driving around midwestern towns and canada towns and upstate new york towns and just like yep. dropping off carloads of people they turned into vampires to wreck the city so maybe that's where Reese came from we know she's a recent convert I'd love to see how that plays out so a lot of books that we're covering and we're not covering Avengers but like a lot of us are reading it three books with these big themes in them so like ah, like I can't wait to see if they all tie together I really hope they do yeah well since this current volume of Moon Knight does spin directly out of Jason Aaron's Avengers Age of Conchu event it's not impossible yeah 